0: Hi, friends. Uh, welcome to our teaching for this week. And uh, before we get into the teaching, I just wanted to introduce you to my friend, Stephanie Christensen. Uh, Stephanie uh, works at Horizon. And I first heard about Stephanie when she was at Bethany, and my dad would mark these papers, and he'd say, "This, there's this incredible student Her name's Stephanie, and he would talk about her all the time. And uh, it's just been my my pleasure to get to know Stephanie over the last uh, number of years and she and I both wrote our master's thesis on uh, a guy named Miroslav Wolf that no one has read and so uh, we have this bond and this connection and so uh, oh and then th- there one other fun connection Stephanie's husband Austin uh, works at our competition down the street at Cornerstone Church with my dad um, and so I've been trying to get Stephanie to come join our church for a long time, but she just refuses to, uh, being connected to a church. But uh, she is a gifted teacher, and, and uh, so I'm really excited to have her uh, share with us in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, before that, we, we do that, though, Stephanie, I'll just give you uh, a chance. You also work at Horizon, which has a, a growing relationship with Forest Grove. And so why don't you just tell us a little bit about uh, whatever you want to say about yourself and then also about Horizon and uh, just sure. give you that opportunity
1: here. First. Yeah, thanks so much, Nathan. And thank you, North Sight, for allowing me to speak to you whenever you're watching the video. Um, another cool thing that Nathan and I have connected over recently is he was actually one of our adjunct faculty at Horizon. He taught a course for us, Reason and Christian Belief, that just finished up a few weeks ago. So it was great to have him on campus and we got to work together, which was really fun. So yeah, Horizon has been around for a few years now, but we just moved into a brand new building right beside Forest Grove Community Church on Attridge. So obviously that physical proximity leads to thoughts of partnership and what does that look like? So we're really excited for that. Um, And also if you've been around in the Sask MB world, world. There's been this ongoing talk of partnership and working together between Horizon and SASC-MB, so we're excited to see what that looks like. We also work with uh, the Alliance, uh, the Church of God, and of course the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada. And yes, we are college and a seminary. In the college, we have this unique form of education that Nathan got used to uh, during his time with us called competency-based education. So our goal is for our students to walk away with certain skills and abilities from their classes, And if their work doesn't meet a certain standard, we actually work with them to bring it up to a certain standard. So you don't just get 51% on a sermon and you're good to go. We actually work with you to revise it and make it better and make sure that the students have the skills we're asking them to have. So that's a little bit about what we do. Um, I will, because I'm in an Anabaptist church, I will highlight our Anabaptist history and thought class. It's a module that's being taught by Randy Claussen, who is a professor at Bethany College. And that's coming up May 10th the 14th so if you are interested in learning more about anabaptist history and thought one of my favorite topics and which kind of relates to the sermon a bit this morning actually so uh just get in contact with me my email is schristiansen at horizon.edu or you can bug nathan and i'm sure he'll be able to get you in touch
0: thanks stephanie i i I'm thinking about taking that class with Randy. I think it's going to be really good.
1: I think it'll be so good too.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, that's awesome. And uh, with that, uh, we're going to do this really weird uh, transition in the video that if you're watching it now, and uh, we're just happy to have you teaching with us. Thanks so much. And I
1: recorded my sermon yesterday. So my hair is going to be up. I'm going to be in a different (laughs) outfit. So I didn't do a really quick costume change. It was yesterday.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Thanks so much, Stephanie. Thanks for having uh, me. Here she is.
1: Thank you again for having me with you whenever you're watching this. I really appreciate it. So let's start off this morning by talking about choices. So some choices we make are not serious. Should I have toast or cereal for breakfast? Other choices are more important. Should I take that new job or not? And still other choices will shape our stories in profound and irrevocable ways. There is a famous story of an early Anabaptist reformer named Dirk Willems told in the book, Martyr's Mirror. At the time of the Reformation, many Anabaptists were persecuted for the theological convictions that differed from the state churches around them. So Dirk, arrested and imprisoned in the Netherlands, managed to escape. Dirk ran across the ice, his captors in pursuit of him. He then realized that one of his captors had fallen through the ice into the frigid water. What choice would Dirk make? Our text today is Matthew 5, 38 to 48, and I'll be reading it from the NIV, so please follow along with me. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So when we start talking about turning the other cheek and loving our enemies, lots of important questions and objections are raised. What about Hitler? What if no one had fought in the war to stop him? Or what would you do if an armed criminal broke into your house? These objections, while certainly straying to the worst case scenario, are indicative of deep questions and concerns that surround the topic of nonviolence. However, as Nathan talked about a few weeks ago, drawing from Matthew 7, verse 24, the Sermon on the Mount is about hearing Jesus' words and putting them into practice. Turning the other cheek and loving our enemies is something we do because Jesus asks us to, not based on whether it works or not. So have you ever had this sort of fight with a sibling? You're playing around and you're having a good time, and all of a sudden, you push or punch your sibling just a little bit too hard. And as they start to cry, you begin to bargain with them. You can hit me back just as hard, just please don't tell mom. Or you can have my dessert for a week if you just stop crying. Even for children, there seems to be an innate sense of some sort of justice in the world. In verse 38, DA Carson reminds us that Jesus is quoting the Old Testament law. Exodus 21:24 to 25 says, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. And Leviticus 24:19 to 20. Anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. Sounds a little bit brutal, doesn't it? Now, before we get too indignant, it's important to realize the purpose of these Old Testament laws, according to Richard B. Gardner, is to, quote, uphold the right of injured parties to compensation or retribution, end quote, and to, quote, limit the extent of retaliation to punishment appropriate for the crime committed, end quote. So we, as humans, when left to our own concepts of justice, so quickly fall into revenge that outweighs the original crime committed, as so many interpersonal conflicts and wars testify to. While not the final say on the subject, these Old Testament laws help to prevent revenge from becoming a burning forest fire, burning out of control, and destroying everything in its path. But now Jesus is calling us to a better way of fulfillment of the law, We are now called not to merely stay within the given bounds of retribution, but we are to respond to violence by choosing the fruit of the spirit, peace. And I'm following Kurt Willems' lead here. And when we choose this fruit of the the spirit, we do away with the endless cycle of revenge. We are called to confront evil, not by playing evil's game, but by stopping it in its tracks. Jesus illustrates what this might look for us in three vignettes, as explained by N.T. Wright in his commentary, Matthew for Everyone. So number one, turning the other cheek. When someone slaps you on the right cheek, this is an insult because you are being hit with the back of one's hand. Turning Turning the other cheek certainly does invite another blow. But if you must hit me, this time hit me as an equal. Number two, handing over your coat. Someone's taking your shirt, go another step further and offer that they take your coat as well. And he writes says, show him what he's really doing. Shame him with your impoverished nakedness, end quote, as you hand over your clothes to him. Three, go the extra mile. Roman soldiers could force an average civilian to carry their pack one mile, but no further. If you were to carry their pack another mile, you might shock that soldier. He could get in trouble since he is only allowed to ask you to carry the pack for one mile. Often, verse 39 has been taken to sit passively by the face of evil. Do not resist an evil person. However, as these vignettes illustrate, there is a certain kind of resistance happening here. It isn't a violent resistance, intent on getting even and inflicting further pain and violence. But it also isn't a called passivity to sit by and let evil go unchecked. N.T. Wright says that, quote, whatever situation you're in, you need to think it through for yourself. What would it mean to reflect God's generous love despite the pressure and provocation, despite your own anger and frustration? End quote. We need eyes touched by the Holy Spirit, who gives us the fruit of peace, to imagine what it might look like to approach each situation, not with revenge and violence, but with self-sacrificial love. I am fascinated by the study of history, and when I look at the indescribable evil that has occurred throughout human history, it seems overwhelming to even begin to imagine what it might look like to resist this kind of evil without violence the carnage of the world wars, the heinous evil of the Holocaust, the unspeakable horror of various genocides. Where is the Sermon on the Mount in all of this? But just because it isn't easy doesn't mean Jesus doesn't ask us to. And not only does Jesus ask us to do it, he shows us how to do it. If we back up to verse 41, R.T. France notes that the word translated as forces is used only in one other place in the New Testament, in Matthew 27, 32, when the Roman soldiers forced Simon of Cyrene to carry Jesus' cross. That speaks volumes to our vocation as disciples, to pick up our crosses and follow Jesus wherever he leads. Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything he hasn't already done. Miroslav Volf, a theologian who wrote of forgiveness and reconciliation based on his experiences as a Croatian, processing the Yugoslavian wars of the 1990s writes, quote, the cross breaks the cycle of violence. Hanging on the cross, Jesus provided the ultimate example of his command to replace the principle of retaliation, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, with the principle of non-resistance. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also, end quote. Jesus breaks the cycle of evil and thus ushers in a new world order where we turn the other cheek and, as we'll talk about next, love our enemies. So not only are we to choose peace by breaking the cycle of violence, we are to choose another fruit of the Spirit, again following Kurt Wilms here, love by loving even our enemies. Again, D.A. Carson shows us that Jesus is using the Old Testament law as a dialogue partner here, drawing from Leviticus 19.18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Only this time, there's been an addition by the Old Testament interpreters of Jesus' day, hate your enemies, which shows up nowhere in the Old Testament. D.A. Carson reminds us that in the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke, Jesus is going to redefine who a neighbor is, not just someone who looks like you and acts like you and is easy to help, but anyone who shows up in your path is your neighbor, and not only are we not to hate our enemies, we are to love them and even pray for them. As D.A. Carson says, quote, praying for an enemy and loving him will prove mutually reinforcing, end quote. How much more countercultural can Jesus get? He is asking us to do what is so very difficult, what doesn't make sense, what doesn't benefit us, what we likely don't want to do. I've never been much good at sports and I don't follow any sports currently. When I was a kid, I watched my dad ardently cheer for the Toronto Maple Leafs, and I wanted to be like him, so I cheered for the Leafs as well. You can pause the video here and insert your sarcastic comment if you like. I would wear Maple Leaf pajamas, I would watch the games with my dad, and I even attempted to compile stats of the team and players just like my dad did. None of this stemmed, I believe, from a great love of hockey but rather from a great love for my dad and a desire to be like him. When we love our enemies, we are doing what God has done for us and for the whole world that, as verse 45 states, we may be children of our Father in heaven. And we will be able to reflect that piece of God's character more when we understand our own deep need of him, that once we were his enemies and he has now brought us near. Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, You who were once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We will be able to reflect this piece of God's character better when we spend time with him in prayer, asking that we may be like him. This kind of love for enemies must be a fruit of the Spirit, for by sheer human willpower, I don't think we're going to be very successful. We are called to something more as God's people, as Jesus' followers, enabled by the Holy Spirit. Verses 46 and 47 if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? In all right now, Tim getter writes, quote, How desperately our world needs examples of people who are willing to live the life Christ modeled for us, to love our enemies, whether personal or national. If Christians won't be those models, who will? We do not ask how lovable the enemy is or for that matter, how dangerous we ask God how to treat enemies. God tells us and God shows us. This isn't easy. There's no way that this can be easy. It is hard to love enemies. It doesn't make sense and it will cost us. Again, Miroslav Wolf provides us with some poignant wisdom here. At the beginning of his book, Exclusion and Embrace, Wolf writes, quote, after I finished my lecture, Professor Jurgen Moltmann stood up and asked one of his typical questions, both concrete and penetrating. But can you embrace a Setnik? It was the winter of 1993. For months now, the notorious Serbian fighters called Setnik had been sowing desolation in my native country, herding people into concentration camps, raping women, burning down churches and destroying cities. I had just argued that we ought to embrace our enemies as God has embraced us in Christ. Can I embrace a Setnik? The ultimate other, so to speak, the evil other? What would justify the embrace? Where would I draw the strength for it? What would it do to my identity as a human being and as a Croak? It took me a while to answer, though I immediately knew what I wanted to say no, I cannot, but as a follower of Christ, I think I should be able to, end quote. As Jesus followers, we know what we need to do, but we can't do it on our own. We need to be in the discipline of following Jesus in the little things so that when we get to the big, overwhelming, impossible things like loving our enemies, we can do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to pray that we would be like Jesus. We need to invite the Holy Spirit to come, to indwell us, to show us the way. Our passage ends with the instruction to be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And this serves as the conclusion to all of the you've heard it said, but now I say passages. Now the word we translate as perfect is the word for end in Greek. R.T. France tells us why this choice of word is important. The end is, quote, a life totally integrated with the will of God and thus reflecting his character, end quote. Each day we are faced with a choice. Will I reflect God's character today? Will I choose peace and break the cycle of revenge, refusing to get even, refusing to put my rights as number one? Will I choose love for even my enemy, even when everything within me rebels at such a cock? costly and paradoxical notion. So let's transport ourselves back to the Netherlands in the 16th century. Dirk Willems is faced with a choice when the ice cracks behind him under the feet of his pursuer. He could keep running. He could see it as a sign of good fortune and deliverance as this turn of events would allow him to escape his unjust imprisonment. So what does Dirk do? He chooses peace and love by turning back to rescue his enemy from the icy water, even though in the end, this results in his recapture and being burnt at the stake. And as I've reflected on this story, I've asked myself, what makes someone do that? And the only answer that I can come up with is that when we follow Jesus, we are given strength to love our enemies, no matter what the outcome. Philippians three ten to 11, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. May Jesus give us strength and wisdom as we seek to choose peace and to love even our enemies. Amen.